0: Welcome to Eudaimonia, a podcast about people. My name is Nick, and by hosting these conversations, I hope to engage with women and men who have led meaningful, interesting, and good lives and broadcast their stories to a wider audience for inspiration and interest. The show takes its name from the Greek word meaning human flourishing, and it is this theme which rests at the heart of the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Paul Monk, poet and polymath, who has been a long-time friend and mentor of mine, who has just written his latest book, which is called The Secret Gospel According to Mark, The Extraordinary Life of a Catholic Existentialist. Welcome, Paul, to the podcast, Eudaimonia. It's great to have you here, and uh, I was hoping you might be able to open up and firstly tell us a little bit bit about yourself and also um, about the book which you've just written. Thanks,
1: Nick. It's good to be on Eudaimonia. This is the technology of our time, and I think it's uh, giving us a very flexible means through which to reach a wider audience. Uh, Briefly about myself. I set out many years ago after leaving school to get myself uh, what you might call a liberal arts education. I wanted to understand Western civilization um, rather than just go into profession. Um, Meaning, truth, uh, and value were high on my agenda. I did an arts degree in European history. I then did a doctorate at the Australian National University in International Relations, which was about US counterinsurgency strategy throughout the Cold War. And at that point, I thought I'd really better get a job and I worked in the intelligence services for a number of years after that, and they assigned me to work on East Asia. After six years in the bureaucracy, I lost interest in being a bureaucrat, uh, intelligence uh, worker otherwise, and since then, over more than 20 years, I've worked as a consultant, I've taught in universities, and I've written a string of books. Um, This latest book, however, takes me all the way back to before I launched into that liberal arts degree, and in many ways, it tells the story of the person whose influence on me prompted me to want to do that. That man was um, a fellow called Marco Lachlan, who taught me briefly for one semester in year 12 and made an indelible impression. And uh, I would never have anticipated 43, 44 years ago that I would end up writing his biography. Mm. And indeed, all those years ago, he hadn't done most of what I've described in the biography. Um, But he became, after being my teacher, a mentor, a friend, a role model in a lot of ways, and an inspiration. And in this latest book, I've told the story of how he was
0: all those things to me and, as it turns out, to a great many other people as well. Mm. It's an extraordinary summary and, I guess, a, a fascinating insight into how you know, life can have sliding door moments where you incidentally meet someone. I met you at a pub in 2012 and you know, we've since struck up an incredible friendship and, um, and, and, and relationship. Um, which has informed many aspects of my life, so perhaps I'll be writing your biography one day. But uh, um, anyway, so could you maybe, using that as a jumping off point about Mark, tell us a little bit about how and why he first made that big impact on you. Was it through the the teaching of religion or or science? I mean, what, what kind of was that moment in which you knew this was a special person? Well, it's probably worth observing, though I didn't know it at the time, that he
1: met me at Aquinas College in Ringwood in 1974 because he had, in a sense, been um, sent to Coventry. He was in a religious order and they sent him out to Aquinas by way in a sense of disciplining him him Mm. because they thought that he was off the reservation a bit. He was too progressive Mm. in his thinking. Heretical. Heretical in a way. And um, they wanted to corral him. And uh, he says these days that they thought they were punishing him But, in fact, it was providential sending him to Ringwood because he met me (laughs) and my family. Um, But uh, that's all looking back. At the time, he was sent out there in a teaching role and he was a science teacher, an excellent science teacher, but I didn't study sciences. I met him in religion class Mm. and for only one semester in Year 12. But what he did in that class was transformative and uh, it really lit a fuse. And uh, I might read... Just a paragraph from the book where I'm making precisely this point. I first encountered Mark when, for a single semester, he taught my Year 12 humanities class, Religious Education, 43 years ago. I found him to be a teacher different from any other that I had had. He was tall, strongly built, spoke in a clear and authoritative voice and seemed to brim with vigorous ideas. At a defining moment, he stood before us with a book called African Genesis by Robert Ardry and read to us its opening lines. Not in innocence and not in Asia was mankind born. The home of our fathers was that African highland reaching north from the Cape to the lakes of the Nile. Here we came about, slowly, ever so slowly, on a skyswept savannah glowing with menace. Man is a fraction of the animal world. Our history is an afterthought, no more, tacked to an infinite calendar. We are not so unique as we should like to believe. And if man, in a time of need, seeks deeper knowledge concerning himself, then he must explore those animal horizons from which we have made our quick little march. He read these lines not as some mere academic book learning, but as something fundamental to what we needed to understand as human beings. It was the winter of 1974, and this was revolutionary. No lay teacher, never mind any member of a religious order, had ever brought evolutionary biology or the science of human origins into a religion class in my earlier schooling. Mark placed these profound matters front and center, and invited us to reflect upon them, and that in me ignited a passion to get to the bottom of the relationship between human evolution, religion, and the history of our species. That I have, um, I have lived by to this day. Mm. That's why I undertook the studies that I did,
0: uh, and it's what enabled me in the end to write Mark's story so many years later. That's mm. an extraordinary passage, which has these incredible sort of Shakespearean Hamlet resonances as well in it, but. Um, yeah, certainly, it's it's very moving to hear from you what a profound impact that that passage and Mark's role as an educator, and pastor, and teacher actually had on you as a as a young man. So,
1: well, uh, I should add that there was, of course, more than that. That was simply a signature moment which I've mm. always remembered. But he also brought into religion class uh, an unusual sense of the real human meaning of various passages from the Bible. No other religion teacher, had brought the Bible alive to me in the way Mm. that he did. Not as a fundamentalist, not as a preacher, not as a dogmatist, as a human being. And there were passages from Isaiah, from Micah, from the Gospel, from the Acts of the Apostles, which he brought into religion class and discussed with us, which have remained with me ever since. Mm. And it was clear to me, the better I got to know him, that this wasn't just uh, doctrine he was
0: teaching. This was the way he lived. And yet this is all extraordinary because you were a head altar boy in Ducks of the School and, and obviously Mark had that profound influence on you as a as a Christian teacher. But you, I mean, this is just tangential aside, but you did leave the Catholic Church and are a, an avowed sort of atheist.
1: That's, that's correct. And this, of course, goes to the heart of the project because I found myself thinking Mark comes across as completely real and authentic as a human being. The values that he's espousing seem... Um, profound. But I cannot make a connection between those values and the dogmas that I'm supposed to recite and profess to believe. Mm. And I can't make sense of this idea of God. Mm. Um, So I'm not going to keep going to church and saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, when in fact, I'm not even sure what all this means. And insofar as I think I'm clear, I don't think I do believe that. But I do believe in justice in integrity, in compassion, you know. And Mark brought into the religion class, in addition to the Bible and human evolution, the novels of Albert Camus and and the thinking of John Paul Sartre. These are existentialist Mm. thinkers who had made an impression on him only a few years before and whom I'd really never heard of before then. And when I left school, as soon as I left school, not only did I buy Adri's books and read them for myself, I bought the books of Camus and Sartre and I started to... Put, you know get my hands on anything I could about what was the church, how did it come about in the first place. When I went back to university, I studied classics, I studied philosophy, I did Reformation history, I did modern revolutions because I wanted to understand, quite literally,
0: what on earth is going on. Mm. Extraordinary. So just moving along in the interview, I mean, w- what are some of the things that seem to you to make his life extraordinary or, or, or worth writing a 700-word a Biography on which I think is is is, is, is really um, you know a testament to like this great gesture you've made for this incredible man. Obviously, telling a story about I suppose an an unremarkable man in many ways because he's you know not a celebrity, he's not famous, he didn't accrue great wealth or fame or power, um, you know. And yet and yet you, you say in the subtitle of the book, the *Secret Gospel According to Mark*, the extraordinary life of a Catholic existentialist. Why, why is he extraordinary? Uh, I would say at two levels, and, and let me say it's not a 700-word
1: biography, but a 700-page one. Sorry that I say word, yeah. I
0: can't edit that out, unfortunately. Yeah, First time <laughs> oh, nerves. A, a moment yeah. of humor. would <laughs> <laughs> be a very short biography, wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> but um, I think the thing that struck me about Mark from very early on was the breadth of his interests and the strength of his character, the combination of these two made a profound impression on me, Um, and uh, uh, subsequent to that, he kept developing. He didn't remain static, and he wasn't a figure in my past. We remained in touch, and what I realised is that in addition to teaching science and teaching religion at school and doing that exceptionally well, he was an outstanding sports coach. He had been an outstanding athlete as a young man. And um, then he became a scientist of world stature in his own right in marine biology. He became a great mentor of young Catholics in a youth movement called the Stranger Movement. And many of them wrote letters to him, which I got to read you know, in recent years, in which they testified to his unique impact on them as a person uh, for his intelligence, his care, his imagination, his freedom. Um, He also founded ecumenical communities so that he extended the reach of his Christian vision Mm. or his biblical vision, if you like, Mm. beyond the Catholic uh, community in which he'd grown up Mm. and certainly beyond the male monastic order in which he'd been formed from a young age. He brought women as well as men into these communities. He brought non-Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, um, uh, Chinese, Thai, Korean East Timorese into this community, and he he made that community work. And again, there are letters from numerous individuals from these different backgrounds testifying to what a remarkable father figure he was, what a great community leader, what a great mentor he was, what a splendid human being he was in terms of his humour, his compassion, his intelligence. Um, So when you combine mentoring youth, um, founding communities, being a great teacher, being a great scientist, being a great sports coach... And then you add yet another dimension. He became also a pastoral counsellor for the psychiatrically afflicted and he did extraordinary things in that field. And once again, I have letters that people wrote to him uh, or interviews that I did with them where they testified to his unique impact because of his capacity to reach out to such people as people, not as patients, not in terms of their illness, but in terms of their humanity. Uh, so you can see from that spectrum of activities that he really has lived an extraordinary life, in terms of range, doing more than most people it do. Is. But what's really extraordinary is that in every one of those fields, he has delivered uh, with extraordinary integrity uh, and effect, in terms of other people, his impact on other people.
0: He's a wonderful model, I suppose, for the types of lives we'd all like to live. You know, lives committed to ideals, great causes, other human beings rather than, I suppose, the, you know, the humdrum, you know, I guess, tasks that sort of confront us day to day and week to week and month to month, which we sort of just get through, right?
1: I think that's true. We, we live in a culture that is very addicted to celebrity. So a lot of people um, read glossy magazines. They're always reading about movie stars. They're reading about wealthy people. They're reading about famous people. And what we know from these glossy magazines is, first of all, that a lot of that stuff is puffery right, it's not not even accurate or honest a lot of the time that many of these celebrities actually live dysfunctional and unhappy lives. Their impact on others is, is, is as often destructive as it is creative or nourishing. What's remarkable in Mark's case is that he's never been a celebrity, he's never sought celebrity, he's never sought high office, even within his religious order, though he's had leadership positions. He's simply sought at every point to do what he felt was called uh, to be done mm. in terms of the biblical background from which he came. you know, And I can't emphasise this too strongly because most of us need models that are real, that are doable, that aren't fantasy land, right? That, that if we dream only of being an elite athlete or a Hollywood celebrity, um, we're in many respects off with the fairies. First of all, because it's out of the reach of most people and secondly, because it's often not what it's cooked up to be. If, on the other hand, it's possible to live a life which has great impact uh, and is intrinsically rewarding without any song and dance routine or puffery, then that's far more within our reach in principle. And Mm. that's what Mark has done. Um, I want to share with you another aspect, however, of his life, and this becomes crucial to understanding the richness of his life as he experienced it, because not only was he so compassionate, and, uh, and such a great mentor to so many people. He had a great interest, and has a great interest, he's now 83, in the arts. He loves uh, good cinema, you know, good classical music, ballet, um, great art, and this goes all the way back to when I first met him. And it's always struck me that this range of interests, on top of everything else, contributes to how extraordinary a human being he is. And I'd like to read a brief passage which just, one of many, which in the book illustrates this aspect of his life. This is the first time he travelled abroad. He went on what was called a Tertianship, a study tour with his order to Rome uh, and got to see a bit of Europe. And the passage I'm going to read is his first free day in Rome. And it will give you some idea of the kind of mind we're talking about. On his first free day in the Eternal City, The traveller visited the Pincio, the great hill that had been outside the old city walls during the early history of Rome, but was the site of the fabled Gardens of Lucullus from the 1st century BCE, and was brought within the enlarged walls of the imperial city in the late 3rd century CE. What had been the Gardens of Lucullus, including a fabulous villa and library, coveted by others and eventually taken over by the Empire, was by the late 20th century the Borghese gardens which surrounded the Villa Borghese and the Borghese Gallery. All three would later become favourite haunts of the Christian brother on his returns to Rome. His first visit was a reconnaissance. He moved quickly on to the Tiber, crossing it at the Ponte de then visited the Palace of Justice, the Castle of St. Angelo, originally the mausoleum of the Emperor Hadrian, built in the early second century CE, and then Vatican City. Several days later, he travelled outside the city limits, up into the Alban Hills, and visited Castel Gandolfo, the papal summer residence, away from the seasonal heat. There, in a large courtyard, he heard an address by Pope Paul VI to several thousand people from around Europe in Italian, but simultaneously translated into German, English and Spanish. He was stepping here into a quite extraordinary historical setting. Castel Gandolfo is a town that has grown up on the ruins of what long ago was an immense summer residence of the 1st century CE Emperor Domitian, which had occupied a staggering 14 square kilometres. Even earlier than that, it had been the site of ancient Alba Longa, dating back before the foundation of Rome itself. Castle Gandolfo was built in the 12th century, but acquired by the papacy when it ruled much of central Italy in the late 16th century. It was handed over to the Italian state as a museum in 2016 by Pope Francis. Mark took day trips south to Pompeii and north to Assisi, but within Rome, his attention was riveted by the endless architectural and art treasures of the ancient secular and perennial religious capital of the Western world. He visited the Capitoline Hill, gazing upon the imposing equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius, then wandered through the Capitoline Museum and the Capitoline Picture Gallery, laying eyes for the first time on such classical works of sculpture as the Dying Gaul and Eros and Psyche. He would attend Verdi's La Traviata at the Teatro Eliseo on 20 September a production of the same composer's Rigoletto on the 26th, a second performance of La Traviata on 3 October, and a dance fiesta in the Alban Hills that evening. In between, we find him at the National Museum of Valle Giulia, the National Modern Art Gallery, the Borghese Museum and Gallery, and a catacomb of Saint Priscilla. His interest
0: in the arts was inexhaustible. That's extraordinary. Um the second sort of component to the subtitle, which I wanted to come back to, was this notion of him being a Catholic existentialist. Mm. Can you sort of reconcile those two terms for us here briefly? Yes,
1: it's important to understand that um, Christian theology, Catholic theology, in its foundational centuries was greatly shaped by Greek philosophy. In its earliest centuries, that was principally the philosophy of Plato and Plutinus, the Neoplatonist. In the medieval period, on the other hand, the writings of Aristotle were rediscovered and it started to become clear that Aristotle was a very different thinker to Plato, much more what we would call a secular thinker. And uh, there were people who feared that Aristotle's philosophy would pull the rug from under Christian belief. So people called the Scholastics set about trying to demonstrate that Aristotle's philosophy was perfectly consistent with Christian belief and used it to articulate it on a new basis. Aquinas and so Uh, forth. Thomas Aquinas is the Mm -hmm. most famous of the schoolmen of so-called scholastics. And for centuries after that, most notably um, in the wake of the Reformation with the Council of Trent in the 16th century, scholasticism was the philosophy that defined Catholic belief, and to a significant extent also Protestant belief, Lutheran and Calvinist. However, in the 20th century, scholasticism had come under very substantial criticism in terms of epistemology, in terms of how we define what is truth. And uh, a number of philosophical schools grew up, um, the proponents of which uh, one might say were not particularly religious. And the same kind of challenge occurred for the church as it occurred in the medieval period. How would you articulate Christian belief in terms of these philosophies to make them acceptable to or comprehensible to 20th century people? One of the most notable such philosophies was existentialism. The difficulty with existentialism, unlike that of of the philosophy of Aristotle, is that it was somewhat vague, uh, what exactly is existentialism. The simplest way to define it, and this was crucial to Marx's life, is that scholasticism basically basically says God is a thing out there, an existent entity in which one believes. The resurrection actually happened. The Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus. Mm -hmm. The existentialist turn in, in theology is uh, all of these things have to do with the human imagination. God is a projection of the human psyche as a conscious being in the world, the horizon of being, not a thing or an entity external to a conversation among human beings. The Eucharist is a symbolic uh, ritual mm. about community, about being members of the body of Christ, that is to say a redemptive community which we call the church. Mm. Um, the resurrection is is an event within the human mind, in terms of our transcendence of the mundane and the concern with mortality or the uh, the carnal appetites rising above that, uh, despite, for example, the execution of Jesus, his presence animates the redemptive community called the church. That's an existentialist way of looking at it. Karl Rahner was a distinguished Catholic existentialist theologian. Mark picked this up in the early 1970s because he'd started to ask himself, I've taught these dogmas in scholastic terms. I've said I believe them. But now that I ask myself, what exactly do I believe? I, I find that I can't make sense of them in scholastic terms. Because he was a mod man, because he was a scientist, because he was a highly intelligent and thoughtful person. But perhaps existentially he could. Um, because if you could understand them in those terms, you could continue to live by the great values which he believed you were called to in that tradition, and which he did live by. Um, so. From that point, he he tried to live out and find the existential meaning of the Catholic tradition, the biblical texts, the scriptures, as they've been called. Uh, And the argument, I suppose I would say, of my biography is that he did that with exceptional quality and integrity. um, And that's what made his life a Catholic existentialist one as well
0: as a humanly extraordinary one. This notion of living up to the example or, or stature of Christ... Is that right?
1: Well, this is an idea that was put to him by the Wesleyan minister, Drew Laleen, who was his supervisor when, in 1991, uh, already aged uh, 55, he undertook clinical pastoral education to become a pastoral counsellor to the psychiatrically afflicted. And Drew said, you know, our call as pastoral ministers is to rise to the full stature of Christ. Oh. Now, if we took that in, in an exos- in a, sorry in a scholastic sense it would be a little difficult to understand what exactly it would mean. And it might even seem a little blasphemous, Christ being Mm. the Lord and and God. You can't, in the nature of the case, rise to that stature. If, on the other hand, we're talking about existential meaning, then Christ is the great myth that grew out of the exemplary life of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. And one endeavours to rise to the stature that that myth calls one to, which is of compassion, of forgiveness, of, of healing the sick, of visiting the prisoner, of caring for the orphan and the widow. In a tradition, that goes back before Jesus to Isaiah and Micah. And Mark undertook that. And what we find in his ministry there is really quite extraordinary. Um, again and again, he encountered people deeply afflicted, suicidal, depressed, schizophrenic, psychotic. And he was able to touch them as human beings Mm. in such a way that he won their love, their gratitude and their respect um, uniquely in that environment. I interviewed a number of these people who had actually been uh, drawn back from the brink by his care uh, to living more normal uh, and even completely normal lives. Just through his work as a pastoral counsellor for psychiatric patients. Indeed it is. And I'd like to share with you, just as an illustration of the profound impact he had on some of these people, a letter that was written to him by a 20-year-old girl to whom he'd been a counsellor. Uh, this is at LaRundel, Psychiatric Hospital, as it then was. Um, she was suicidal. She'd been sexually abused when very young and her life had become a psychological mess. Mm. Um, but he was able to find... Her and reach out to her in such a way that she saw him as unique. The tragic thing is that uh, she took her own life, unable to go on. But what I'm about to read is a letter that she wrote to him and arranged that he would get only after she had taken her life. Uh, and these uh, few words, this brief letter, I think conveys um, quite profoundly the impact that he was having. On her, as on others, in aspiring to rise to the stature of Christ, as Mm -hmm. as Drew had Mm -hmm. had suggested, the letter reads, Dear Mark, I know you're probably angry and upset with me, but it's because you couldn't possibly understand what it's like to be me. I decided once and for all to end the nightmare and set myself free. Please forgive me. I want you to know that to me you were the father I never had but always wanted. You made me feel so special and so happy. Whenever I was with you, the sun shone brightly and I felt safe and secure. But you couldn't be around me all the time and I couldn't go on feeling the way I do. I have deliberately stayed away from you in the past weeks in the hope that the longer you didn't see me, the less upset you would be. I hope it worked. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for all the wonderful times you shared with me and all the things you did for me. Apollo Bay was one of my all-time fondest memories And when I said to you what I did in the kitchen that day, that I now felt able to give my life a go, I was really telling you the truth. But in the end, the urge to escape forever was too great. I love you, Mark, your eternal friend, Kelly. It's very deeply moving,
0: actually.
1: It's quite stunning, isn't it? Because you think, how could somebody write such a a sweet letter, Mm. such a lucid letter, written, I should add, in impeccable handwriting without errors or
0: corrections. Recognising the significance of this man and his redemptive power in many ways.
1: And then go and hang herself. Mm. It's, it's, it's baffling. Yeah. It's,
0: you know, powerful. You you, 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 you mention in the epilogue that Mark maintains, to this day he's 83, I believe, this incredible human warmth and, um, you know, supporting, reassuring, educative sort of... Um, human qualities identified by Kelly in her letter all those years ago and yet despite all that he has seen in you know clinical pastoral work in psychiatric hospitals and a whole range of other facets of his life as a christian brother in his order um he has become more melancholic in his later years is that is that sort of just i guess the accumulated weight of all that he has seen in terms of human suffering that idea from Romans eight eighteen 18, that, uh, you know, the, the world is growing and we groan with it sort of thing? Or is it, is it, is it is his melancholic, I don't know, disposition? and Not that he is a melancholic person, he's lovely. But, yeah, could you speak to that sense of sadness or that he has?
1: Yes, there's several strands to it. Um, I should um, preface it by saying that um, over a long period since he took the existentialist turn in the early 1970s, um he started to develop his science as an outlet for his passion and imagination, as well as these other things and by the time he 's becoming melancholic uh, which I think is, is an accurate description of of his mood in the last ten years or so, he has published sixty five scientific papers he's hmm. given. Uh, papers world around scientist. the world. He's done mm. five stints of research at the Smithsonian. He's been on an expedition to the Antarctic. You know, he's very highly regarded. Um, so his life had expanded. His circle of friends had expanded. The gratitude coming back to him from all sorts of people was abundant. And you would have thought that perhaps in those circumstances, why would he be melancholy? Well, the answer is twofold. One is that he had striven throughout those years to get his order to also rise to the full stature of Christ, to renew itself, to become more imaginative, to reach out more. The Christian brothers. The Christian is. brothers, yeah. to be less enclosed, less cloistered, less conservative. And he'd had only moderate success, and that weighed on him. That wore him down a bit. Mm. So that by about 2008, he's in Washington doing research at the Smithsonian, and he's writing back to his community uh, saying that he he can't do that anymore. He's... It's almost become traumatic for him. He thinks that they don't want to hear what he has to say, they're not going to change. Um, And he's just got to put that aside. So there's that strand to it. The other strand is that um, he became more and more concerned that the world of mankind at large was not moving in a very um, promising direction that ecologically we were devastating the planet in terms of our impact on other species, in terms of the sustainability in the natural environment of Mm. our materials use and our appetites, in terms of, I think, what he perceived as our culture um, becoming more and more consumerist, not only in terms of um, materials but in terms of
0: human relations. Yes, and and he has this incredible grasp of, quite literally, like earth history because he does work in deep time given his um scientific work with like and so on and you know he's going back you know many many millennia to different periods in you know the Earth's biosphere and 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 so on so he has this incredible sense of i guess of perspective for humanity that idea in uh, that initial reading with audrey you read about that you know our, our whole history is just like the last page turn in the book of the earth's history really
1: I think this this is important. Um, I don't think it's led to melancholy. I think that that aspect of his life opened up horizons to him that are largely unguessed by those of a narrower outlook. But I haven't talked about the specific um, fact that you've just touched on, which is that his marine biological mm. work and his reputation are linked to work on echinoderms and what many people would think of as sea stars, though sea stars are only one kind of echinoderm. The crucial thing here, to pick up your hint is that echinoderms are an extremely ancient life. Form. Yes, that all the phyla of echinoderms that are in existence today appeared during what's known as the Cambrian explosion. Indeed, five hundred and forty-five million years ago. All right. So I was off when I said millennia. <laughs> <laughs> millions of years. Yes, it's right. hundreds of thousands of millennia. Mm-hmm. Right, and um, echinoderms are very unusual creatures. Um, But among invertebrates, uh, and this will really sound strange to our listeners, as Richard Dawkins points out in his book, The Ancestor's Tale, about evolution in general, um, echinoderms are among our closest relatives in the invertebrate kingdom. Is that right? Um, This is one of the many counterintuitive aspects of what we've learned about genetics in, by and large, Mark's lifetime. Um, So he's been positioned, A, in deep time, B, with exotic and very ancient creatures in deep time, uh, C, those creatures have been sea creatures, and the, the sea became more and more of a metaphor for him in terms of his dreams, in terms of meaning, in terms of ecology. Um, and uh, he was at the cutting edge um, by the, the last 10, 15 years of research on echinoderms. Mm. Uh, and the significance of that research for our understanding of life on earth, of conservation, of speciation, uh, of uh, environmentalism. And so he was getting his source of transcendence and depth of meaning anti sense of concern
0: and melancholy at the same time. It's, it's quite an extraordinary reflection. Um, I really can't add much more to that. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> um, if I can sort of make a bizarre shift, I suppose, but... All of what you just mentioned in, in many different buckets of conversation have, have sort of, um, you know, they sort of bespeak an incredible energy, of vitality, a vitality, a, you know, an, an unerring sense of endeavour, um, all the while as a Christian brother, which we've gently alluded to towards the end of the interview, um, and of course that order um, prescribes that its, its members must be chaste, so without any sexual relations at all. Can you speak to that notion of chastity and, I guess, abstinence in the 21st century, which is entirely unappealing and, and just not workable for many people? It's, a, it's an outdated sort of concept, and yet it seems to have underpinned you know, his ability to be such a wonderful person without any kind of overlay of, of, of sexual relations at all. It's almost enabled him to be a more fuller human being. Um, but that's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? Because so much of our relations as human beings are... Up in sexual relations, basically.
1: Yes, they are. It's been a very uh, notable phenomenon of Western civilization over, let's say, the last hundred years or so, that our culture has, you would have to say, become more and more sexualized. So that mm. we're essentially told at one and the same time that sexual gratification is indispensable to the sanity and well being or happiness of a human being. Mm. Um, and that what's generally called sexual repression that is to say non-gratification is simply unhealthy hmm. um, on the other hand uh, we now know with the we too movement and all this other stuff that there is all sorts of anxiety about um uh, sexual abuse sexual license hmm. uh, sleaze etc how do we strike the right balance well I know that when I first met Mark, you know, I was idealistic and I contemplated religious vocation. Mm. But the central thought in my mind in the 70s was, but I'm not going to give up my sexuality. Mm. You know, I've always been a romantic and I thought, you know, why would I give up women? They seem to be the most extraordinary phenomenon in the world, Mm. (laughs) you know. and so I, you know, apart from the epistemological questions about theological belief, I thought, no, I'm not going to go there. Bridge too far. Mm. Yeah, the bridge too far. However, I remained, as I said, in touch with Mark, and he seemed to me to be uh, different to any other religious figure I knew. I knew others, priests, brothers, nuns who'd taken vows. Mm. They didn't impress me as having the same qualities of personality. So I wouldn't say that Mark was an exceptional person because he was religious or because he was chaste. Right. He was an exceptional person who was religious and chaste. I see. But the way in which he lived out his vow of chastity has been uh, exemplary. And it shows that this can be done. Mm. That's the point I would make. And I used to ask him, all the way back in the late 70s, why are you a Christian brother? Why did you do this? Why would you accept these vows? Why would you limit your life? And his response then, and I would say this has remained the case, was I'm not a Christian brother now for the reasons that I was when I took vows many years ago. When he was 15. He, when he joined the Order as a novice when he was 15. He was very, very young. Mm. Um, uh, but he said you know, he was formed by men of character and intelligence and high ideals, we should make this clear, you know, at a time when there's this uh, sense that too many religious figures um, seem to have infringed against Mm. canons of propriety or even engaged in really criminal activity, that that, even according to the Royal Commission, is still a distinct minority of religious figures. So most of them, a great majority, have not been accused of any such thing. And Mark stands further apart because not only is he not accused of such things, he has lived a quite exceptional life, a really virtuous life, mm. right? Um, but let's come back to centre frame, right? uh, I know many people, um, and particularly women, right, who testify to Mark's uh, integrity, his virtue, um, uh, and also, of course, his virility. So he, he hadn't withdrawn from sexuality out of incapacity or distaste. He was, he was a great athlete, a virile man, a man interested in human uh, sexual relations and in culture more generally. So he, he wasn't shut off. He wasn't blind to reality. He was looking it right in the eye and choosing freely to live this way in order to give to others and not succumb to basic appetites. Mm. That's exceptional at any time and not least
0: in our time. It is. And it's one of the reasons why telling his story was well worth doing. Mm. Just to conscious of time, Paul, I, I want to sort of come back to um, the title of the book again, mm. um, which has sort of underpinned a lot of my questions um, today. But, you know, you call the book The Secret Gospel According to Mark. Um, a couple of questions here, which I hope you might be able to remember. I know you will. But firstly, what do you mean by the gospel? Like, are you suggesting that there is some sort of message in his life, which I actually think that answers itself, having just done this interview? Um, and in this book that you've written, which is almost the gospel, to, which has recorded the light of this sort of uh, Christ-like figure, um, frankly. Um, but what would that message be and what makes it a secret? Well, I got the idea for the title from um,
1: Frank Commode's book, The Genesis of Secrecy, where he says that in the 20th century, a guy called Morton Smith found in a monastery in Israel a letter uh, or a copy of a letter, it was an 18th century copy of a letter apparently written in Greek in the second century by Clement of Alexandria, one of the great church fathers, as we call him. And Clement in this letter had Mm -hmm. said that when St. Mark wrote what we regard as the canonical gospel, he wrote it in Rome based on the reminiscences of St. Peter. Mm. But when Peter was executed under Nero, Mark fled from Rome, went to Alexandria, and there, says Clement, he wrote a second and secret gospel mm. which is only made available to those being initiated into the deep mysteries. Now, I thought to myself, how tantalising is this? Given that, that the Mark of my story, first of all, is called Mark, but secondly had been christened Peter. Right? So if you just look at his life, there's the Peter ordinary story. O'Loughlin. Peter Desmond right. O'Loughlin mm-hmm. is, his, is his name. Yeah. His family to this day call him Des, right? Yeah. Um, but he took the religious name Mark. And as Peter Desmond O'Loughlin, he was taken into the religious order and trained in scholastic theology in the old monastic conservative tradition. But over time, he rethought this and he thought to himself, no, I think what, what the gospel surely really means what this whole idea of of Jesus as a salva, you know salvific figure uh, of the Last Supper and all the meanings we attach to it they have they have an existential meaning, and he tried to live that meaning out, not turn it into a doctrine that he sort of self righteously preached to anybody, which he never did. Um, that's in a sense the secret gospel according to our Mark. Mm. And what I do towards the end of the book, having told the story of his life in its many dimensions, is trying to distill out. So what are we really talking about here? And the answer is that Karl Rahner, the existentialist theologian, had said, if we retreat from the idea of God or deity and the sacred, we run the risk of regressing to just being uh, clever animals with, with tools and, and weapons and appetites. We would lose our sense of the transcendent. So I ask, well, maybe Rahn was onto something, but let's look at Mark's life, because what he did is he retreated more and more from that theological language. He was more and more immersed in human community, in human art, in human science, and in the truths that science has made plain. Did he regress? Demonstrably, in fact, he did not. Did he become merely a clever animal? No, he didn't. Did he lose his sense of transcendence? No, he didn't. This ought to be reassuring. What Rainer had said is, if you also disconnect from a, the idea of a personal God and God intervening in history, as in the biblical tradition, then at best you would be left with natural religion, where it is this world and its possibilities, that in which you seek your transcendence and your meaning. Well, Mark did do that. And one could say that by the 2010s, his religion was, in a sense, a natural religion religion, but one nevertheless anchored in the greatest uh, calls for justice, the greatest poetics, the greatest mythology, if you will, of the biblical tradition, Um, but attached now to being a person informed by the scientific sense of deep time and actual ecology uh, and the nature of the world. That, it seems to me, distills the secret gospel. So it, it. it is a hermeneutical one. It mm. brings down to us in our time the values, the best insights that we can still find if we read what mm. we've so often called the Holy Scripture, mm. but without the dogmas, without the mystagoguery, without the yes. papal authority, yes. without the yeah. scholastic. Mystification, so the idea of transubstantiation is a stumbling block for non-Catholics. Literally eating the body of Christ, body and blood of Christ. What can this possibly mean? This sounds like cannibalism. It sounds weird. (laughs) But if, on the other hand, and there are hints of this even in the epistles of St Paul, what one means is that when we partake of the Last Supper, consuming bread and wine,
0: we are members of the body of Christ, the mystical body, which is the Church, which is living differently. Well, that has some meaning. What I think also has meaning, Paul, and this is my final uh, sort of point, is of, of today's interview, is that I I, I think that the, the power of narrative, and you refer to this in the in the biography, the power of narrative for, for understanding and engagement is so much more compelling than rigorous, you know, schema of doctrine or ideology or, or, or dogma or whatever it might be, and particularly those who sort of you know blandly just regurgitate what 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 is sort of laid down to them. I think that. You know, stories like Marx need to be told because it is, frankly, I guess psychologically or, I don't know, in terms of engagement, how people relate. And I think you'll actually find a lot more people um, who have lost, you know, touch with the Catholic Church, with their faith, whatever it might be, Hindu, um, Islamic, Buddhist and so on. really being inspired by this lived example of, oh, I just think a good human being, which we should all aspire to be. Um, so that's what I, sort of, as a final reflection, do you have anything to add on to that? Yeah, I, I would say that
1: that is surely the case. You know, there's an old um, quip, you know, which points to hypocrisy when you, you know, you, you say that a certain individual who purports to be an authority uh, is in effect saying, do what I say, not what I do. In mm. other words, don't look at my example, yeah. just follow my words. With Mark, it's completely the other way around. Right? He has never, in all the years I've known him, been someone to say, this is the truth, take it from me. His deeds, not words. It, sort of it, absolutely, mm. right? Um, and even when he does, as he has done, exemplary things, he doesn't say, you see, I'm the guy who's got it right. He just says, well, I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing this is, you know, I'm seeking transcendence, I'm trying to form community, he doesn't have tickets on himself.
0: Earnest, authentic, genuine, hardworking, humble.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, he's not seeking the limelight. Um, what he hoped when I ar- he asked would I perhaps write his biography was that I could at least help to get the record clear mm. uh, and show... Um, what, if anything, had been the meaning of all the things he'd been trying to do? What does it add up, what does it add up to? Yeah. And, and I should, perhaps this is a good note on which to finish, say so the, the, um, the bottom line is, um, well, you can try things out, uh, whether cynically or idealistically, whether dogmatically or open-mindedly, but at the end of the day, you have to ask, does it work? Well, he founded these ecumenical communities which were clearly experimental. Hmm. They weren't hippie communes, they weren't socialist utopias hmm. and they weren't monastic communities and they certainly weren't cultic. Hmm. They were communities in which people, men and women, old and young, Christian and non-Christian, could come together and what he was able to generate was a community always of only a dozen or so people, the number of whom, uh, well, not the number but the you know the specific members of whom changed over time. They would come and go, but the community worked and in preparing the biography, I interviewed numerous people who'd been members of his community at different stages and what they said is the community was, was a wonderful family-like place to live, to be mentored, to feel safe, mm. that Mark was a, like a father figure or a, you know, a big brother, he was so caring, so competent, so uh, full of humour and interest in their stories. This surely is a model worth looking at and then I would say to some of these people, so is it a model that can be replicated? Is this a way for more people in our society where so many people feel alone or uprooted to be brought into communities that might give them a sense of, of belonging and identity and warmth and security? And the answer tended to be, well, it's a good idea in theory, but without Mark, I'm not sure where that would work. <laughs>
0: no, <it's
1: tragic. laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's challenging, isn't it? So can we... Um, as it were, uh, to use a contemporary term, can we clone Mark? If people look at his life, might they be inspired to say, I'm not Mark, but this kind of thing is worth
0: doing? Living up to the stature of Mark. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly so. That's that's what the biography perhaps is asking people.
0: Yeah. Well, it's an extraordinary gift and an incredible gesture. Um, I think it's, it's deeply humbling for him to have someone write about his life in such deep detail with such depth of understanding feeling um and an incredible understanding of the great sort of seismic forces that are at any stage of human history uh, operating on and influencing the individual we we tend to you know labor this idea of you know man is you know the maker of his own fortune the artisan of his own fortune but you know yes we have um faculty within us to do certain things, but ultimately we are subject to forces which are incomprehensible and far greater than, you know, the the, the sum total of the actions of our own individual endeavours. And I think you've taken both those things into consideration, you know, Mark as the man, the individual, but also it's this incredible sweep of philosophy, theology, economics, uh, social changes, academic shifts, um, and other social I think I've already mentioned that, upheaval. So it's a unique work, I think, um, Paul, and uh, I, I do thank you very much for being here today to explain it and I hope that we can help Mark's legacy live on through not only the gospel, the secret gospel according to Mark, which you've published um, and is available online, and but also through this podcast, which might um, broaden the, the sort of set of listeners a little bit wider. Yeah, and we should point out to your listeners, of course,
1: that they won't find a book if they go into their favourite bookshop but they will find it online. Mm. It's available on a print-on-demand basis through all the major online retailers, Amazon, Book Depository, Angus and Robertson, Barnes and Noble. Um, And for those who are a little finicky about cost, um, it's a big, lavishly illustrated uh, and expensive book, but this winter we hope to produce both a paperback and uh, a Kindle version. They won't have all the photographs, they won't have the maps, they won't have the appendices, but you'll get the main text.
0: Perfect.
1: So you can choose. All right. Thank you very much, Paul.